welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening. On July 15th, previously unreleased DEA data about the opioid sales from 2006 to 2012 in America was released. Some consider it a smoking gun for the opioid epidemic. The ARCOS data, as it's known by the DEA, reveals the distribution path of every oxycodone and hydrocodone pill sold from manufacturer to distributor to pharmacy in every town in America. In the end, the Charleston Gazette Mail and the Washington Post prevailed in a fight to get the Arcos data released, but not until after a battle that began long before most people even knew about the DEA's tell-all database. My name is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. In this two-part series, We'll trace the history of how the ARCOS data was finally made public, and we'll talk about why the DEA, the Justice Department, and Big Pharma all opposed its release. Today, you'll hear how a journalist from a nearly bankrupt paper and his relentless pursuit of an explanation of how his state became the epicenter of the opioid epidemic resulted in the release of the ARCOS data. Our story begins with Professor Patrick McGinley who is a professor of law at the West Virginia College of Law, and Suzanne Weiss, who practices law in Morgantown, West Virginia, and is also a teacher at West Virginia College of Law. They were hired to represent the Charleston Gazette Mail and help investigative journalist Eric Iyer gain access to DEA and Big Pharma court records from 2012. As attorney Pat McGinley begins telling the story of how the ARCOS data was released, it's clear it started a very long time ago. Going back really to 2013, uh, when the editor of the Gazette asked us to assist Eric in in using the Freedom of Information Act to, to determine whether the then attorney general of West Virginia had actually recused himself from the so-called pill mill cases that had been filed by the, uh, that attorney general's predecessor. Attorney General McGraw uh, was prescient, and he, they filed a lawsuit in 2002 against Purdue Pharma. And so it goes way back to 2002. And of course, that was, there was no precedent for that. So in that case, uh, Attorney General McGraw realized it was a, a very serious problem. In, uh, in West Virginia with prescription opioids. When I talked with the former West Virginia Attorney General, Daryl McGraw, he started with the political landscape and its impact on the course of events. A newspaper editor said to me, the general rule for uh, politicians is that they don't want no trouble. <laughs> well, this was trouble for the state to be proceeding against a major pharmaceutical company because the state has a vested interest in attracting people and had attracted uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers to the state over a period of time. And uh, 
they resisted that the notion, and this was always a question, even when I was on the Supreme Court. Uh, there's always a question about uh, officers of corporations that commit acts that the officers are responsible for, but uh, even though they're responsible for them, they, they have no liability because they are involved in a corporate activity. And the corporation is a separate person from uh, all the persons that constitute it. That suit looked to hold Purdue Pharma manufacturer responsible. But as uh, time went on and the, uh, the epidemic grew, McGraw uh, understood that it, the story was much bigger than just manufacturer peddling prescription opioids as non-addictive, which Purdue Pharma did. He tried to explain standing to me, but I have to admit I didn't get it. It wasn't clear until the former attorney general talked about their justification in settling the case for $10 million. We brought the case in a jurisdiction that uh, had been very much suffering from this uh, issue in the same county now uh, that they had built the federal prison. And uh, the... uh, the court was receptive to our action, but it was all an uphill battle again with the claim that we didn't have standing and that uh, while no one had uh, overturned the tobacco thing on any appeal for standing, that we still didn't have standing. And so the consequence of the whole thing was is that uh, uh, we had big guns from Washington. Uh, One of the folks that I remember they became uh, Attorney General of the United States. Uh, it was his name, Mr. Holter. He was one of the uh, lawyers for Purdue Pharma. And they finally reached in uh, that enterprise a, an agreement to settlement because of the involvement of the case going against the officers as well. And we still had the standing issue, and we had a $10 million offer to settle, which was not a lot of money for this particular uh, thing. But uh, if there was a settlement, uh, there was no uh, standing to appeal to uh, resolve in an appellate court, which is always risky, to resolve uh, whether or not we had standing. So we settled that case for $10 million and accomplished standing. Attorney General McGraw's 2012 lawsuit focused on prescription opioid distributors. And I think their theory, um, at least one of their theories, was that these distributors, when they're, when they're delivering millions of opioid pills to a small town like Kermit, West Virginia, they received 9 million oxycodone pills in two years, they had to know that this wasn't being used for legitimate purposes, that was being diverted, and that there was a direct causal connection between this legal cartel and the opioid epidemic, because those drugs were obviously getting out of the street and were addicting people by the thousands. He also had a political fight on his hands internally in West Virginia. Uh, because uh, politicians in West Virginia, uh, governor's office, legislators, they didn't want the state to be involved in anything that would appear to be anti-business. And what uh, Daryl McGraw did in his uh, multiple terms as attorney general 
is to to go after uh, corporate entities who are ripping off West Virginians. Uh, he had an extraordinarily active consumer protection division, and uh, he looked for uh, the type of activity that was really causing harm. And Daryl McGraw was not a political favorite of the political establishment in West Virginia. So uh, he had a battle even to get the, the state entities to agree to the lawsuit. As Pat McGinley puts the former AG's accomplishments in perspective, it became obvious why political uncertainty loomed on the horizon for Daryl McGraw at that time. And he really brought it on behalf of the state of West Virginia, I think without a total buy-in by other state officials. So being able to establish that the state had the right to sue uh, a drug company for injury to the state was was a, a major accomplishment, especially because there'd never been any cases like this before. I think for the first off case ever trying to identify uh, and hold responsible a uh, prescription drug manufacturer, I thought it was a, it was quite unique and, and the important first step that led to where we are today. The former AG spoke with me about Big Pharma's influence over the 2012 election. What occurred after that was that the pharmaceutical industry got together. They have a national association, of course, and then they have uh, PACs, political action committees. And uh, so the pharmaceutical uh, industry got together with its Washington-sponsored uh, PAC and they were able to amass quite a giant sum of money to send one of their representatives from Washington, one of their lobbyists, to uh, file against me and run against me, I guess, with no opprobrium attached to it. I think he was a member of the bar of West Virginia four days before he filed for attorney general. <laughs> so this was Patrick Morrissey we're talking about? Yes. Yes. Your successor? Yes. I have read in the newspaper that my opponent came from New Jersey, but that his wife and uh, others of his family lived in Virginia. So she was on the payroll, though, for one of the pharmaceutical companies, wasn't she? Well, uh, yes. Yes, she was represented in the newspaper to be from a... uh, from the pharmaceutical, from a firm that represented pharmaceutical companies, yes, and with which I, it is claimed that he was a member of the firm. With all that money behind him and big pharma behind him, it was still a very close race, wasn't it? Well, yes, yes, it was a close race, but uh, close, however it was, <laughs> he got the most votes. Pat McGinley explained how it came to be that in 2012, Patrick Morrissey became the first Republican to serve as West Virginia's attorney general since 1933. Morrissey was from New Jersey. He was an outsider, and he had a tremendous amount of uh, financial support from some of the business community, especially the pharmaceutical industry. And uh, he'd been a lobbyist for them, and his, uh, his wife continued to be a lobbyist for pharmaceutical companies, including the opioid distributors, uh, through most of Morrissey's first term, because uh, Morrissey had inherited McGraw's uh, 
pill mill case against the opioid distributors, and there was there were rumors going on uh, around the community that Morrissey would try to dump those cases, settle them cheap. And so, uh, Eric, the first step was to ask Morrissey whether he'd recused himself. Uh, Morrissey's response was, oh, yes, I did, as soon as I came into office. And Eric asked, uh, filed a FOIA request for any documentation of his recusal. And the response was, well, it was oral. Well, that's, that didn't make any sense. That, that, that's not the way it works. You, you have a paper trail, and everybody... Uh, in the attorney general's office, should have known that Morrissey was accused. So when Eric Iyer put in a FOIA request, he got stonewalled. And that's really what led to the Charleston Gazette-Mail asking for legal help. But uh, the uh, Morrissey's office stonewalled Eric's FOIA request. Uh, we were asked to get involved, and we filed a FOIA suit, basically asking for any information about either his recusal or Moore's participation in the suit after he took office. And again, the response was to Stonewall. Uh, we ultimately were able to get them to admit that there were were documents that were responsive to the FOIA request, but they were under seal. The local West Virginia trial courts uh, asked us to brief the case. We had a hearing. We thought we uh, there really was was no reason to keep these documents from public disclosure under the Freedom of Information Act. But the trial court held for uh, the attorney general. And then subsequently, uh, a whistleblower dropped off an envelope in Eric Ayer's uh, home mailbox that had documents that indicated that Morrissey had indeed continued to be involved in these pill mill cases and was actually supervising them long after he had said publicly that uh, he wasn't involved. So that information kind of laid the groundwork for you to move forward and work with Eric in getting the ARCOS data released for West Virginia, didn't it? Well, that was the, the next step, but it was all kept secret from the public. And the state and the distributors had agreed to a protective order that the judge signed, much like in McDowell County in the previous Purdue Pharma case. And, and the Gazette uh, asked us, was well, there any way to get the, the, those court documents unsealed? And ordinarily, documents that are filed in court are open to, the, to, to any member of the public. Uh, and there are some narrow situations when a court may find that there's compelling reasons to keep certain filed documents secret from the public. But in looking at this, we thought it was clear that uh, if the state was suing these drug distributors, the allegations they're making about the behavior of uh, the, the drug companies was something that the citizens of West Virginia should know. So we moved to intervene in uh, Boone County, West Virginia, uh, circuit court. And the judge there, uh, Will Thompson, uh, listened to the arguments uh, of the drug companies. The state actually supported us at that point. The arguments we, we made were basically the public has a right to know this information. You don't seal court documents and keep the public from knowing what the arguments are and what the facts are, especially when you have thousands of people uh, being addicted by prescription opioids in 
West Virginia having the highest opioid overdose death rate in the country. And uh, Judge Thompson agreed, and he uh, ordered that the uh, formerly sealed com amended complaints in these uh, pill mill cases uh, be open to the public. And, and uh, it was in those, uh, those court documents that Eric first uh, had a glimpse of the enormous quantity uh, prescription opioids that were being uh, that were flooding West Virginia. They won the fight to get the complaint unsealed, and that led to a new discovery. The DEA had data outlining all opioids that had been distributed in West Virginia, the Arcos data. So the next step for him was uh, when he read the complaint, he saw that there were continued references to DEA data, the Arcos data, the, the data that drug distributors and manufacturers that submitted to the DEA that identify with great specificity the number of uh, pills, the dosage, the manufacturer, and so forth, the name of the pharmacy. Eric uh, consulted with us uh, and filed another Freedom of Information Act request in August of 2016 when Patrick Morrissey was running for re-election as West Virginia's attorney general. And uh, Morrissey's office, again, stonewalled, said, we'll get back to you, we'll get back to you. And at least six weeks had passed. The election was coming up. Morrissey was being pushed by a Democratic candidate, uh, Doug Reynolds, who was basically saying Morrissey is a big pharma's man. Morrissey's still attorney general, and he's taking credit for the, the recent release of uh, the Arcos data. And uh, he claims to be an advocate uh, for those uh, who have been adversely affected by the opioid epidemic. That's his story. Uh, but what happened was that uh, the, the polls had uh, Morrissey and his opponent, Doug Reynolds, fairly close. It was getting close to the election time. Eric sent another four-year request saying, uh, and this, at our suggestion, asking for any documentation they were actually looking for the DEA data. And that's what uh, Eric had been seeking. The, the, the database that they used to put the information in the amended complaints. We had that. It wasn't the whole data. Uh, and I uh, we were also authorized by the Gazette uh, to prepare a FOIA lawsuit against Morrissey. And, and then lo and behold, not long before the election, to our surprise, uh, Morrissey released the entire West Virginia data, uh, Arcos database, to Eric in the Gazette Mail. When it was clear that close ties to Big Pharma was a political liability for Morrissey, he caved and released all the Arcos data for the state of West Virginia. And it was the information in that database that led to Eric's um, writing the stories that won the Pulitzer Prize, and really that. That information, I know it shocked Eric when we learned it. It was, it was stunning. 780 million prescription opioid pills had flooded West Virginia during the period 2007 to 2012. I was stunned. I had no idea. It was bizarre. And it really uh, maddening. I mean, it just shocking. And, of course, at that point, talking amongst ourselves, we said, well, if West Virginia received 780 million pills, that's not all. 
In fact, the report didn't include all opioids, just hydrocodone and oxycodone. There was more than that, for sure. We're saying, well, what are the other states? What did they receive? I mean, West Virginia is not the only place that's impacted by the prescription opioid epidemic. You know, it's clear to us that it had to be billions. Buried in the data was another story. It was obvious there were many suspicious orders, but very few suspicious order reports got filed. Suspicious order reports were intended uh, to help the DEA identify pharmacies and doctors, and maybe even up the chain, uh, where uh, an inordinate number of prescription opioids and other controlled substances uh, were being uh, shipped and diverted. So a good idea. The only problem was many of the distributors, as you said, did Maybe they kept track. They certainly knew how many how many pills they were shipping to a pharmacy, and they knew if it was you know, fifty thousand in one week or whatever. That was a huge number, but they didn't even file the suspicious order reports that both state and federal law uh, required them to file. For example, McKesson filed no suspicious order reports until Attorney General McGraw sued in the the pill mill cases in two thousand twelve. None, and then they started sending them in. But Eric was doing his research for the Pulitzer stories. Uh, He went to the West Virginia Board of Pharmacy and asked for these suspicious order reports, very same reports that are uh, supposedly filed with the DEA. Uh, The Board of Pharmacy had them, uh, and they had them in a couple of bankers' boxes, never looked at them, and Eric went through every one of them. There were more than 7,000 pages. And he wrote about those in, in those those stories that won the Pulitzer. And uh, so they gave a lot more detail uh, to Eric's re- reporting with the name of the pharmacies, the volume and the number. And, and so for the strength, uh, you could see the growing strength of hydrocodone, for example, uh, as the people got more addicted, they needed stronger dosages, and you could see that from it. So that that information was out in the public, at least for West Virginia. The rest of the country, uh, no access to suspicious order reports and no uh, access to the ARCOS data. But we, you know, we, we knew it's just intuitive. If this is West Virginia, uh, the same thing is going on uh, in lesser or greater uh, volumes around the country. And that's what led Eric Eyer and the legal team representing the Charleston Gazette-Mail to Cleveland, Ohio, to visit Judge Polster, the presiding judge over the multi-district litigation. The folks at the Gazette-Mail, they knew that the plaintiffs in the MDL had subpoenaed uh, the Arcos data and I guess, and also the suspicious, suspicious order reports. But we were spoke particularly interested in the Arcos uh, data from the DEA. So they called us and said, well, is there some way to get this? And, and we said, well, it, it, if the counties who have sued the manufacturers and distributors uh, in, in federal court, they're in the MDL, they have possession of it. Those should be subject to the West Virginia Freedom of Information Act. And we filed a, our, Eric and uh, our porter at the Huntington uh, Dispatch uh, filed FOIA request with one of the counties that's a plaintiff there. And it was at that point that Judge Polster invited us and also the Washington Post, who is similarly filed FOIA requests to Ohio counties, 
to explain why we're entitled to them. So that got the ball rolling. I think the Gazette gets a lot of credit because uh, last summer, Judge Polster denied both the Gazette and the Washington Post access to the Arcos data and said that it could remain sealed. Um, And it was the Gazette decided to appeal. Um, They were willing to take on that fight, a small town newspaper willing to take on that fight. The family-run Charleston Gazette Mail made what had to be a very difficult decision while, as we later learned, they were slowly headed into bankruptcy. We filed an appeal on behalf of the paper, and then subsequently the Washington Post um, decided to appeal as well. And those two appeals before the Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit were successful, and Judge Polster then released the data. So along the way, what surprised you most about this process and making this happen? I've been a lawyer for a long time. I, Suzanne and I both teach at the law school, the College of Law at West Virginia University, and we've been involved in public interest litigation for, for decades. This is the most impactful litigation that we've been involved in, but it's the behavior of uh, corporate managers in their counsel. In this case, we're Hundreds of thousands of people have died as a result of prescription opioid overdoses, and millions have been addicted. And the DEA joining with these companies to try to conceal the basic facts of how the opioid epidemic was fed and grew over more than a decade with very little uh, effort at law enforcement. I, I, I think there's some very good people in the DEA, uh, certainly at the at the uh, at the street level, uh, but the the politics clearly interfered with any efforts to to curtail this growing epidemic. When the revenues keep rising, and and the quantities of these drugs are growing exponentially from year to year. Then they knew. Everyone knew from manufacturer to distributor to pharmacy and doctor. They all knew that this wasn't uh, on the up and up, that that these drugs were being diverted, but they were making so much money that they just kept doing it. They paid their fine when they were caught. The $600 million that Purdue Pharma paid to Virginia back in 2006. They kept doing it. Cardinal Health paid millions uh, relating to the uh, their distribution uh, center in Florida. They kept doing it. They all kept doing it. And they're still fighting to keep subsequent data from the public. They are still fighting to prevent the public from knowing um, the 2013 and 2014 Argos data. And they're fighting to keep the suspicious order reports from public disclosure. That's something that no one's talking about. The Arcos data and suspicious order data from court records after 2012 still hasn't been released. So they haven't given up the fight. Today, this is going on right now in the, in the MDL case. The drug companies say, well, the DEA approved our quota or the DEA didn't take enforcement action. The DEA says, well, you know, we're, we're shorthanded and we didn't get the suspicious order reports. And the, 
distributors say, we're just picking up the opioids and delivering them to the pharmacy and, and the drugstore, uh, the pharmacy. So we're just filling prescriptions written by a doctor that has a license. And the, and the doctor says, oh, I'm just trying to help pe- my patients have pain. And the fact of the matter is they all knew because of these volumes. It's just a bunch of baloney. And the you know this litigation in Cleveland with 2,000 government entities suing a range of people in this legal cartel, um, yeah, it, it's clear what happened. And uh, they've got – really, there's more than 1,000 lawyers working for these uh, drug companies in toto. But the truth is clear. I think this information that's out in public now, uh, people across this country know that these volumes of prescription opioids built and the opioid epidemic that's blossomed now into heroin and fentanyl, and they all knew what was going on. And they made, they made huge amounts of profits. What do you both think the most important point is that you'd like people to take away from this podcast on this topic? Well, I think it's really important for the public to understand the litigation that has been brought on their behalf. Um, I think it's really important. I think that the attorneys involved in the case, and I think state, local, federal governments um, are going to have a responsibility to use any proceeds that they get from this litigation to put, make sure that that money is put uh, towards treatment and prevention. Um, legislation should be passed. Um, I think the DEA needs to have more authority. They need to have legislation passed to give them the authority um, to prosecute these cases, um, to suspend orders. I think that that's, those are the most important points, I think, that these cases brought on behalf of the public, uh, the money needs to go to treating treatment and prevention. For, from my perspective, in addition to that, um, I hope your listeners take away the lesson that transparency is the best disinfectant for government secrecy and that uh, a vital, aggressive local newspapers, reporters like Eric Ayer and and others, uh, reporters at the Washington Post, digging in and finding the truth and getting it out so that people can understand how this epidemic grew and people can draw their own conclusions about who should be held responsible. But there's a lot more information out there now. uh, And when people go to the voting booth, they ought to act on uh, what they learn from this horrible episode in American history. Well, thank you both for spending a few minutes with us today and enlightening us on everything that's, that's happened behind the scenes to make this data be produced and reveal it to the general public. I think that that's huge. So uh, so thank you. Well, thank you. Yes. Thanks for what you do as, as well. Absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, it's the, they say it takes a village, and hopefully uh, we'll see some justice at some point. We've been joined by attorney Patrick McGinley, professor of law at West Virginia College of Law, and Suzanne Weiss, who practices law in Morgantown, West Virginia, and also teaches at the West Virginia College of Law. They gave us a behind-the-scenes look at their successful fight for the release of the ARCOS data 
despite fierce opposition from the DEA, the Justice Department, and Big Pharma. Join us for part two in this series for a discussion with Washington Post investigative journalist Scott Hyam and his account of the battle over the release of the Arcos data and what we've learned from their analysis of a 350 million record database. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.